Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 130 for April 10th, 2019. My name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus in Missoula, Montana. And joining me in this episode, as always, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening. Good evening, Wes. How are you tonight? I am good, and I'm looking forward to the opportunity to talk tech. It's been a kind of wild couple weeks at school, and it, it'll be good to uh, to talk. We've got lots going on, as always. And again, you continue to pick up the slack for my lack of you know putting show notes in before the show begins. So thanks to my if this then that recipe that grabs tweets with the hashtag EdTechSR. I can throw a couple things in there, but I appreciate you uh, picking up the slack. I'm, I'll, I'll try to do better as we, as we move forward. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, well, uh, lots of interesting things going on in tech this week. Uh, there's a lot of updates from our friends at Google related to the G Suite for those districts that are using that. Um, there is always some interesting Apple news. But I want to start this week's show with our kind of regular visit to what I'm referring to as the technology correction trademark, which is our discussion of how technology seems to be changing after the evolving stories that are kind of around the 2016 election. But I would say it's also more broadly a correction of, I guess, how we're using technology and maybe reconsidering, you know, tech at all costs, which seem to have dominated the way we've adopted technology, not in education, but broadly in society over the past decade. But there was an extensive expose from Bloomberg on uh, the 2nd of April, 2019. This is from earlier last week, and we didn't get a chance to get to the story last week. But um, in essence, um, uh, Bloomberg reports that YouTube executives knew that the platform was in many ways becoming a cesspool of hate and misinformation, and yet they didn't act to do anything about it. And this is something we've been on the, I guess, the outer edge of as we talked about technology and, and, and platforms, social platforms like YouTube in past episodes of the podcast. But the bottom line is, is that not unlike Facebook and acknowledgement from inside that organization that there was at least a suspicion that the tool could be used to spread misinformation or disinformation as part of election cycles. It also appears that YouTube um, and those that run that particular uh, organization knew that the tool could be used for nefarious purposes. And if you are a regular listener to the podcast, you've heard us talk about YouTube. It's it's a really tough balance, I think, because YouTube is such an incredible e-learning tool and provides such an amazing platform to share, share for people to share their passions, for students to have a worldwide audience, and to take something that used to be such a limited phenomenon, the airwaves, they were costly to broadcast on, they were required specialized equipment, uh, licensing from the government, and yet YouTube provides an opportunity, not uh, uh, even beyond this podcast, right? We, we use YouTube Live to join once a week from two different states and different parts of the country and connect with each other and ultimately an audience. And so I think this is a grander part of the discussion we need to be having as we engage in, in maybe a correction or at least a reconsideration about how these technologies work. So first I'd start with Wes. We've talked about this nose, this notion of balance before that we need to find a way to maybe eliminate uh, the risk of some of these tools without eliminating the ease, ease they have of, of providing voice for so many people that have something interesting and valuable to say. Um, are you surprised that executives knew that it could be used for nefarious purposes? No, not at all. And, and as I'll talk about in some other uh, videos and articles this week, I mean, really, really smart people have recognized this issue for quite a while and are working as absolutely hard as they can to try to resolve it with the highest level math and AI and algorithms and everything. They're, they're throwing everything they got at this and they're not able to work it out yet. How are we going to be able to move forward uh, supporting things like free speech and, and freedom of expression um, and then also face things like liability and, you know, how, how, what, what, how do we decide what is not appropriate and, and then how do you keep it off? And of course that was accelerated on a global scale most recently by the shooter in New Zealand and the live streaming that happened on Facebook. 
So um, what is your take? Are, are, are you surprised at all in, in anything in the Bloomberg piece? I'm not. And I think that it also further highlights, you mentioned this notion of, of, mo- of moderating this content. It reminded me there's a podcast episode a couple weeks back um, that I was going to refer to and we never got a chance to. But uh, this season of IRL from the Mozilla Foundation, the In Real Life podcast, uh, uh, hosted by my podcast host, uh, 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 favorite host, which is Manush Zamarodi of, um, uh, Note to Self fame and, uh, the Zigzag podcast. The thing that's interesting uh, about that is that I, I mean, I obviously I do think that it's important we have content moderation. Like I, I think an unfiltered environment that doesn't at least eliminate out categories we can all agree shouldn't appear in, in open public spaces is an important piece, but it reminds me of the challenge of exactly doing that. And this amazing episode from this season of IRL um, uh, goes into content moderation and how difficult that is as a concept. A logarithmically, we can't solve the problem, right? Like it's not good enough just to have um, AI identify things that are dangerous. And in some cases, um, because of... Um, the, the rule frameworks that do exist worldwide about some content that's just simply not allowed in public spaces that you have to oftentimes, uh, you know, view every minute of potentially um, uh, offending content to then add a human could come out to the moderation. And, and what's interesting about this podcast episode is it talks about the people that are trying to um, uh, uh, moderate uh, channels oftentimes face extraordinary human consequences because looking at videos of violence, looking video of crime, looking video that's considered obscene um, uh, by narrow or wide audiences does leave a psychic mark. And if we're producing gazillions of minutes of YouTube uh, a video, you know, every minute, I you know, it's, it's, it's hard. I don't know what to do. Right. Like it's certainly not that we ban YouTube. Right. And you know, you can't, you can't kind of stuff this one back in Pandora's box. Right. But at the same time, we have to do something. Right. And so I, I would go back to education, right? Like parents need to know about YouTube. It's good. And it's bad. Teachers need to know about YouTube. But at the same time, I think Wes and I would both advocate very strongly for, you know, it's not as easy as just banning it at the filter level, right? Because most of the world's content ends up on YouTube. Well, actually, by by pure fact, right? More minutes end up on YouTube than any other broadcast resource because it is the most popular video site on earth. But you know, we got to find a way to balance this out. So I want to uh, mention a couple other articles I put under or videos actually, uh, and an article under the technology correction headline. Um, the first one I've read about half of, it's from Stratechery uh, from April 9th, and it's called A Regulatory Framework for the Internet. And one of the pieces of, as Jason terms it, the technology correction is most likely the fact that we're going to have a greater level of regulation that's going to happen. It's already been happening in Europe with the GDPR. Um, we've mentioned on the show and talked about this um, Article 13, which is a copyright provision that was tacked on to uh, an EU um, law that it's called the, well, the European, uh, yeah, it's the European Copyright Directive is Article 13. <sighs> what this would do basically is make the platforms liable for, for copyright violations require, you know, a platform to have an extremely expensive, difficult, and maybe even impossible to fully 100% utilize content filter. Uh, it says that Google spent over a hundred million already on its content ID platform. Um, and then it also references what's happening in Australia with their law that, as I mentioned, most recently we have the shooter in Christchurch, New Zealand, who live streamed, I think, with a GoPro camera onto yep. Facebook. And um, one of the videos I'm about to mention, just it is unbelievable the way in which the distribution of that particular video and then others like it are being automated by we don't know who. It could be nation states. It could be non-state actors. But it is basically impossible at this point for the social media platforms to completely have a handle on it. And I haven't ever said this before on the show, but I've done a ton of reading, even more than usual about this to prepare for a workshop that I'm a three hour workshop I'm leading on Sunday down in Dallas. And this may be an intractable problem 
I think I, like a lot of us, have had a lot of faith in technology, and we really had these naive years with Web 2.0, and you know maybe the 2016 election was a turning point, but I don't know if the if, if these kinds of issues, because we have um, sort of given assumptions right now, like with YouTube, that any of us can sign up for an account, and we can upload video, and we can upload an unlimited quantity of video. Um, it, it, I, I find myself longing for the, the past days of the, you know, early web 2.0 where, where we were just publishing on our own blogs and we were, you know, using RSS and, and there were different ways that you would discover, but it was through pingbacks and, you know, it wasn't these massive platforms right. that had, um, really, you know, th that have these problems that might arguably be intractable. So this article by Stratechery, it's called a regulatory framework for the internet. It's outlining these issues and it's, you know, examining this question of whether or not we're going to be able with these huge platforms to, you know, support freedom of expression and, you know, the, um, the ideals of, uh, of the open web really with the kinds of really nefarious and malicious forces that are really corrupting things at this point. And so there's two videos. Normally we don't, you know, share videos. We're like more article based. Uh, perhaps this is a sign of the times with how, you know, multimedia and, and consuming things via audio and video. This was a recommended video. Okay. Ironically, because, so, you know, we're going to bad mouth YouTube, maybe not bad mouth it, but we're going to talk about the negative sides of it uh, tonight. We already have, but, you know, it's a phenomenal platform for creators, and I really have loved the recommendation engine, both on my laptop and also on my Apple TV, which, by the way, it's a bummer. You can't stream, you know, your Netflix. You can't airplay your Netflix anymore to Apple, t to Apple TV, right? Thanks, you know, the battle between Netflix and, and, and the Apple TV folks. But um, anyway, this is a video by Paul Davids. It's called How This Crazy Copyright Policy Impacts Me. Um, he is a musician, and he loves teaching guitar. And this is, uh, he has over a million subscribers. Uh, this particular video was posted on April 2nd and it has over 400,000 views. And gosh, it is just heartbreaking how he and so many other, um, you know, teachers are just completely hamstrung by a lack of respect for fair use. And one of the things that's very interesting today, and interesting is not the great word for it, but you know, we're talking about global policies and global values. And so, you know, we have a fair use provision of copyright law in the United States. That is not present everywhere. And so in his case, he's talking about the media labels, the record labels. Do we say that word anymore? Um, the labels who, who publish music and own the copyright to these different songs, literally going down to one short guitar lick. And because of that, either giving a strike or taking off all monetization on that video. Anyway, in the context of music and copyright and how challenging it is when you have folks that can strike stuff down, I think that's a, a great video to watch. It's about 10 minutes. But if you're going to watch anything from our show, and, and maybe I even mentioned this last week, the second part of this is out, Smarter Every Day is absolutely one of the most amazing video channels to watch. And so Dustin, or Destin, I think is his, his first name, um, did this video called Manipulating the YouTube Algorithm. Uh, this is episode 2013 of Smarter Every Day. He's doing a three-part episode. Um, I'll drop the link in for, for part two as well, which just, just came out, I think, yesterday, the day before, and it is about Twitter. This will just blow your mind about the quantity of video, specifically when you look at the shooter in New Zealand and the ways in which um, automated systems, these weren't just human beings doing this, we're uploading like hundreds of copies per second of this video to YouTube uh, across the world. But they were also, and they do, modify the content in such a way that you can't apply even a, a very complex mathematical algorithm easily and get rid, you know, and identify that it, it shouldn't be taken down. The one on Twitter that just dropped you know, talks about the millions of bot accounts and how Twitter is doing a lot better with that. But all of this has just really made me wonder, are these problems solvable via technology, via policies? We might, Jason, be in for some fundamental changes in our assumptions about, 
expression on the internet and and where we may end up going. Cause I think amidst all of this, one of the things we need to champion, and I'm trying to figure out kind of my conclusions of, of, of advocacy, cause education is definitely a big part of what we need to be doing, uh, is advocating for the open web and possibly, you know, for our own platforms and not just being, you know, a, a voice on a platform like Facebook, uh, Twitter or YouTube, but being able to, you know, kind of plant our own flag and and being able to post stuff. But these issues are still going to be similar, right? Because even though you won't have the reach and the vir- potential virality of um, of your message when you're not, if you would not be on a social media platform that can amplify it, um, there's still going to be issues about whether you're allowed to do that, you know, whether that content is permitted in your country because, oh, that guitar lick is owned by the label that, you know, the Eagles, you know, originally recorded with. And, and so anyway, it is, uh, it is really, really challenging. So are, are you getting pessimistic or are you, um, you know, still Pollyanna with all of it? Yeah, it's an interesting question because part of what I, I'm trying to, to, you know, kind of rally my brain around is that I'm, I'm constantly reminded of how powerful these tools are. And you know, one of them that's been kind of interesting lately is Facebook, right? Facebook is, and maybe in a desperate attempt to, to remind me about how much good times I've had on Facebook seems to be increasing the number of memories it's sharing with me um, as of late. And so there was one a couple of days ago from 2009, maybe 2010. It's when my wife and I were planning, uh, planning some international travel. We'd actually gone to, I think it was Italy in 2010. And like I booked a hotel, um, uh, in a you know in a, a place based on an internet recommendation, vastly different than when I first traveled uh, to Europe in 2000. The ability to to book it, things, and then I decided to I would drop a, a little wiggly guy in Google Maps in front of the hotel so I could see what the street looked like, and so it was a familiar phenomenon to me when I went there a couple months later and. The internet's been an incredible uh, source for me for travel um, and 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 ways to explore the world. And I think any tool that can help to make the world smaller instead of bigger, I think is a wonderful thing to kind of help, uh, you know, very long-term, maybe fuzzy goals about, you know, kind of world harmony and peace. And at the same time, like, I'm also delighted by the fact that, you know, there are communities hosted in places like Reddit, or Reddit that are into things like field notes, the, the mini notebooks I'm super into, or or um, fountain pens, which is also something that that I have a, a casual nerdy interest in, right? And finding that community um, of people that uh, are into fountain pens or field notes, um, it's just not possible when you live in a you know Montana town of eighty thousand people. But when you can extrapolate it around the world, suddenly there's community. I find a lot of hope in that. But you know, you mentioned the uh, the tragedy in New Zealand. Like that morning, I was terrified by the reports that were uh, that people were taking that video and sharing over and over and over again to the point of which Facebook couldn't do anything about it. And people were sharing violent video. Um, and it was ping ponging around the world, um, at, at subatomic speed. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like it seems like that, that, that there's, there's, there's a balance here, but I'm obviously not smart enough to come up with the answer. There's a hostile infrastructure that has been created by individuals with very malicious intentions to do things that are, that are harmful and malicious, like, take a violent video like that and overwhelm the social networks to the, to the point where um, they today, and again, this is with today's technology. So it's just going to keep the, the tools in people's hands are just going to get more and more powerful. And while the AIs, it's the thing you'll get watching those videos by, by Dustin uh, for smarter every day is what a game of cat and mouse. And we've always had this, I mean, you know, in school filtering and proxies and things like that. I mean, you know, technology departments and school administrators are familiar with, with these kinds of things in terms of ways of getting around. But the kind of infrastructure that is being built out and the ways in which Silicon Valley engineers, and we're talking about the smartest people in coding, right? I mean, they're being paid the top dollar to be able to figure this stuff out. The, the kinds of math algorithms that they're applying here are, are literally like rocket science stuff. Um, and it's not able to do the job. And so I, it makes me very, it's a sobering thing when I think about elections in the Twitter video that just dropped, they were saying, you know, Hey, it's an election somewhere all the time. Right. So yeah. there's always, 
uh, the case where folks that want to subvert uh, democratic processes, they, they've always got a target somewhere. It's sobering to me to think about our elections. And we we thought it was bad in 2016. You know, quote me on this. Just hold on to your hats, folks, because <laughs> it's just going to keep getting worse. I do not think that, you know, short of some kind of unforeseen breakthrough in maybe it's machine learning and AI. I mean, people are holding out the hope that that's going to be our salvation, you know, rather than become, you know, Skynet and the Terminator. Um, <laughs> I don't I don't. I don't see an answer to this. Yeah. And so that brings us to our educational lens for all of this, right? Jason and I are, are both, uh, you know, teachers and educators. We really need to grapple with these kinds of issues of media literacy, of how do we verify content? How do we take responsibility for the things that we share? And then how do we take control over the radar screen or, or whatever metaphor you want to use for you know, the screen where you, you take in information, you consume information. I think today there are, you know, tons of people, Neil Postman, where he's still alive, just as he was very critical of, of people just watching the television, you know, and, and then being influenced by, by advertising and whatever kinds of media messages were being shared there. I think far too many people today are allowing themselves to basically be a pawn of someone else's algorithm in a, a platform like, you know, Facebook or, or Twitter or YouTube. And so that's a real important media literacy uh, skill and point of advocacy is, and this is why I'm calling this workshop, you know, filter the exo flood. The, you know, exo is a huge um, number in front of, of content. And so it is this, this mountain of content. And, and we can't just sit back and say, Oh, Mark, Mark Zuckerberg is going to solve this for us. You know, he's such a smart guy. Um, no, he is not going to be able to figure this out. And by the way, I'm just, I'm sick of his apologies and I'm ready for, for him to resign and step down. Um, but anyway, perhaps I digress a little bit. But it's uh, it's something that we've got to grapple with as as educators. Uh, maybe Jason, you need a course on on media literacy. Do you guys have like a, a fact checking, you know, validate information? Does something fit into that kind of category in the Montana Digital Academy already? We don't teach it as a class, but that those lessons appear weed throughout both of our ELA our, our English language arts classes and then a handful of our social studies classes. Although, I mean, it's something. Um, I am considering working on uh, a workshop. It's at least a conference presentation with Morgan Larson, who is the current president of the NCCE board and the tech savvy librarian in, in residence at the NCCE. We've talked a little bit about maybe joining forces as an ex social studies teacher, plus her as a librarian to talk about how we need to kind of re bring back that discussion of, of kind of source integrity and, you know, verifying your sources. And it's interesting because I feel like those lessons on the early internet, Internet were well developed and delivered, particularly school librarians were stepping up and, and, and teaching those important lessons. And then I think we got to a point where we felt like the internet um, grew up a little bit, or at least matured into its 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 feisty teen days. And I, I, I feel like we started trusting it a little more for some reason, right? Like it seemed to, that it was less you know, less geocities and more, there's a dated reference, less geocities and more, um, you know, kind of established commercial properties, right? Like all the major media brands had, you know, good functional websites and Web 2.0 came along that, that, that allowed those that weren't in the early internet that, that were experts to provide content. And then we kind of lost that somewhere. And it's, you know, I think to blame. We talk about the disinformation campaigns of 2016. Um, you know, the, uh, there's a reason why Snopes still does extraordinarily well. Here it is 20 years past its, its, its genesis. And, you know, we need it now more than ever because there needs to be voices that go and research, you know, the, the crap that, that ends up coming across our, our, um, our eyes that, you know, has no verifiable source. And yet, you know, the, the, really the, the, the most unbelievable things end up passing as fact. So yeah, like it goes back to it's education. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, uh, you want to talk some Google? Let's, uh, yeah, yeah let's go through for some of these G suite updates. Cause I, I, I probably, I've, had my head in the server closet as it were a bit this week. So I'm sure there's quite a few headlines I've missed. 
there are some interesting things that have gone on. And interestingly, um, I didn't really spot these until like, if I'd known that, that there was a, uh, a big thing this week, it's the Google cloud event or conference event. I'm not entirely sure what, it, what the name of the event was, but a lot of things have been announced this week. Let me start with the Google apps things because they're pretty interesting. So first the verge reported this morning that there is a, a lot of really interesting new functionality, uh, coming to the Google suite. And actually I'll go ahead and talk about, uh, the verge reported this also. I'm pulling in some nine to five Google that reported on this as well. The first interesting thing that's happening is that Google Drive will now allow you to natively modify Microsoft Word, Excel, and PowerPoint documents without having to import them into um, into the uh, the wow. Google Drive or Google uh, Docs system. Okay. And so. Wow. For those of you that are experts uh, on this, do a lot of work in Google Docs, and particularly if you are a Chromebook person, which by the way, I can say that it's pretty much nearly 100% my computing now, even I'm, I'm using a Chrome box at work now. Um, and so the if you open up a doc in a, on a Chromebook, it, it'll open it for you, right? You can even make comments on it, but you can't edit it without importing it into Google Drive and using either sheets or slides or docs to modify it. Well, the new functionality coming to a Google Docs near you will allow you to edit that document natively without having to import that into the system. So in other words, it leaves it as a native Word, Excel, or PowerPoint file. So I'm going to guess, Wes, by your you know, your visual reaction, you are thumbs up on this. Yeah, that's it's huge, right? I mean, we we like... I don't know how many schools have, have been slow to make this transition. I have not fully embraced the new Microsoft subscribe to us and send us at a minimum, you know, $39 per user per year. If you want client side apps, not just the cloud-based versions right. of yep. the Microsoft office suite, 365 suite. And so, wow, that might, I wonder, yeah, because the whole thing with conversion was always like, well, that does, you know, it doesn't move my fonts and it doesn't, you know, it's not, not perfect. And, and so I will be really eager to perhaps go to some of our power Excel users as well as word users. Is that, is it live now or is this going to be coming? In I believe it's coming soon. And, um, I'm guessing you could put yourself in the channel. Um, I do not have a recommended date there. Oh, roll out in April or May, depending on which release schedule your company prefers. So that will be, we're on the earliest release schedule of the Digital Academy. From an educational standpoint, let me tell you a way that I think this is going to change my program. Um, so we support 200 plus Montana public schools as part of my day job, the state virtual school in Montana. And we are very cloud friendly, right? We, uh, everything works on a Chromebook, uh, that we can utilize except for a handful of classes that need, like, for example, some of the specialized statistics stuff in Excel. We, you got to have Excel for that. Uh, some of the computer science courses require coding environments that are not available on Chromebooks, but, um, otherwise, we're very Chromebook friendly, but we run into an issue where students have been issued Chromebooks and they're probably good at using Google Drive, Google Docs, Google Sheets, Google um, uh, um, Slides, but they don't understand that not everyone is in world Google. So when we, for example, when we ask kids to to submit a document to us, we ask them to submit it as a Word doc, uh, which means that you have to go through the extra steps of, you know, exporting to the native environment or to PDF, which, you know, works anywhere. Um, for us, assuming this, you know, by next school year, we should no longer run to the issue where students want to submit a link um, or get confused about the export process because, you know, it will natively modify that file without having you have it uploaded into Excel itself. So or Excel or Word or, or PowerPoint. So we're really excited about that. Um, it also relates to another thing before we get into some of the other interesting pieces. Dropbox has announced that they were, are working on a, an integration with Google Suite to where um, the Google Suite will be the editing 
a component of Dropbox cloud storage. Uh, for those of you unaware of Dropbox, it was one of the first major cloud providers. I still pay $99 a year for Dropbox Pro because it has literally um, kind of history of my teaching job in it. It's been worth it to me to keep that in that location rather than moving that to another cloud storage system. But the problem with Dropbox is that you have to, you know, have a desktop apps to be able to modify things because it is just cloud storage, unlike Google Drive or for that matter, OneDrive. But now there's an integration to where you can use cloud storage on Dropbox, but do all the editing in the Google suite. So that would be Docs, Sheets, uh, Slides. And so that also is quite interesting and I think gives a lot of life to the Dropbox product. Fantastic. Man, that, that is great news. And then one last integration piece of news from uh, the, the the cloud event uh, from Google is that they are going to bring in several third-party add-ins in coming months, including Box and Evernote. will integrate directly into the Google Suite. I'm particularly interested in Evernote. Uh, I think it's a product that um, it, I will tell you it's not my preferred note-taking product anymore. I was a big Evernote guy for almost two or three years. I now just put that all natively into uh, the, the Google Drive. But um, integrating that product is interesting, as well as Box. And then um, one other integration-related piece, for those of you that are, are going through kind of the drama that I am regarding uh, the constantly changing chat apps in Google, uh, Hangouts Chat, which is kind of, um, my, or I'm sorry, Google's answer to Microsoft Teams and also to Slack, is being integrated directly into Gmail, which makes those uh, uh, integrated products, which right now they're not. So lots of interesting things going on in the Google Suite. Awesome. Uh, let's see. I'm going to do just a kind of a weird one. Uh, you put in oddities and sundries. So I dropped this one in. This <laughs> is from The Verge on April 5th. Electronic music has a performance problem and this artist is trying to solve it. And so this um, includes some pretty amazing video as well as photos from South by Southwest that, you know, happens in Austin, Texas every year. And it's the story of uh, Chengal Vandenberg. And so she is a musical performer who basically has to hack together a ton of technology in order to move her hands and her body and create music. And so she is from Holland, obsessed with music and computers from an early age. Um, and then she, um, you know, wanted to be able to basically do a DIY herself uh, for music production, but bring in, you know, musical expression through um, the, the ways in which she moves her body. So, she, you know, one of the points that they're making here is this is way too geeky at this point. Um, but of course, that's why it's at South by Southwest, because there's a lot of, you know, bleeding edge technology. But it's a pretty interesting fusion of uh, music and creativity and expression. And then, you know, essentially almost like cyborg, you know, where, where are these different sensors and, and different, uh, you know, technology, um, you know, uh, cords and, and cables and, and things are being strapped to the human body and being able to share with performance. So Jason, would you pay money to see a musician, uh, you know, basically create music by just dancing around? Does that sound like, you know, kind of a cool thing that would go over well in Missoula? I'd, I would go over well, Missoula, I will say, and, and Wes, you've been here before, so you know we've got kind of that uh, that ethic going for us in regards to, to performance art. But yeah, I'd see anything once. But, you know, I guess it goes back to, you mentioned earlier, this notion of, of uh, you know, being uh, realistic about where, where media and, and tools are going. If if it helps enable more people to, to, to be artists, right, to express themselves creatively, I couldn't be more for it. And um, I, I like the stories. I think they're very inspiring. Awesome. Well, shall we? Um, I have one more kind of, well, actually, I got a couple other uh, kind of googly things. Can I talk about a couple of Android things for a moment? You may take us wherever you would like, sir. Great. I'm kind of our resident Android guy, Android Chromebook guy, right? Um, I, I had an article last week that we didn't get to, and I want to mention it for a moment because I think it's an important piece. Um, ZDNet reported on March 25th that... Um, we have a problem right now in the Android universe, and it is that 
Android phones usually come with pre-installed apps on them, right? And so I'm not just talking about the Google apps, although they are, you know, philosophically maybe part of this discussion, but if you buy a carrier-based phone, and so um, I am still using my trusty LG V20, a uh, three-year-old smartphone that served me very well. Um, it's a T-Mobile version of this device, and although I did not buy it new from uh, the carrier, it is the T-Mobile version, so it comes with three or four T-Mobile apps that, um, for better or for worse, um, are integrated into the system. And one of the things that I, I think is always interesting about that is sometimes they come with apps like Evernote came on this particular one because it is apparently an app that LG has a relationship with. And I know a lot of Motorola phones, for example, come with Facebook. And in some cases, very old versions of Facebook that need to be updated. But the problem with carrier apps, whether it's the carrier branded app or apps that have relationships with the carrier, is that those apps are oftentimes not updated and it creates kind of a security nightmare. And, you know, a week doesn't go by where you don't hear something about a piece of code or a program or an app, no matter how um, innocent it may look, actually has uh, you know, significant security, security exploits available that allow people to, you know, hack into your phone. And the fact that there are a lot of phones going around, people keep phones longer now. Um, even the geeks aren't updating as often as they used to because the technology is slowing down in its, um, uh, you know, new features that are available. You may keep a phone for three, four, five years. And if those apps haven't been updated in four years or if a hack is discovered and that app isn't being updated as part of the regular services of the phone, you have a security risk. And um, I, you know, Android's going through a lot of soul searching, right? There are fights over how often it gets updated and whether security patches are new. People have older phones. Um, I have some family members that literally have 2012 Android phones. These are old Android phones, but they work just fine in context for what they do with them, even though modern apps can install on there. But they come with an additional security risk, right? Because those phones, um, in essence, um, uh, can't be updated, right? So security holes could exist. So I thought that article was super interesting, and I thought it was worth mentioning. Uh, we've got a couple Microsoft articles, and this is a, a pretty interesting one. This is from The Verge on April the 6th. Here's the U.S. Army's version of HoloLens that Microsoft employees were protesting. You know, we have seen, I think, some very... Um, inspiring advocacy on the part of employees of Google, um, as well as Microsoft. I, have, I think I have the, the article to drop in the ethics board of AI for Google. They just finally disbanded it. And a lot of that had to do with a, a petition that had been signed by, I think, thousands of Googlers. Anyway, um, employees at Microsoft have been uh, concerned about the militarization of its technology. And the, Holo, the HoloLens is a, a virtual reality um, device, and man, you know, we, if you read, uh, what is it, uh, what is it called? The Pentagon's Brain, I haven't read it in a while, so I'm going to Google this. Um, I'm trying to think of her name. Um, yes, uh, Annie Jacobson, The Pentagon's Brain, An Uncensored History of DARPA, America's Top Secret Military Research Agency, and, and I... Um, you know, I think shared that as a geek of the week, you know, probably months and months ago. Um, one of the things that Jacobson says there, and I've read, is that, you know, the military and, and DARPA, the, the Advanced Research Projects Group, they are like a decade or two ahead of where we are with consumer tech. And, you know, the development of military tech as well as space tech, it's always been a driver of what we see within the consumer space and, and just other places where technology is utilized. If you think about just the future of warfare and where we're going, um, this is it. They've added a forward-looking infrared radar FLIR uh, thermal camera that's mounted above the user's forehead. And so, you know, we're talking about a pretty incredible capability um, that is going to, you know, allow soldiers to have a much better perspective of where, you know, others are on the battlefield, uh, their weapon, um, being able to, th this reminds me of Ghost in the Shell. Did you see that movie? Have you? No. Uh, so it's, it's one of, they're the compadre of the, of the woman, I'm trying to think, and she's, she's one of the, 
my brain just doesn't work like it used to. Um, <laughs> but maybe I'm going to get it. Uh, she's, she's one of the, um, oh gosh, what, what's the, the, um, Marvel comics that's about to drop its final, um, I want to say Johanna, um, Okay, my brain's not going to work. Anyway, <laughs> she, her, I think she, she plays the main character. That one of the other guys that's with her, you know, is blinded, and so they, but they put eyes in him that allow him to see in all different kinds of frequencies and stuff. So he's not just able to see in the visual light spectrum, but he's able to see infrared, and he, you know, he's got extrasensory perception. He's bionic, and so anyway, this is uh, current technology, which is unclassified, or at least part of it is. And we're getting to glimpse the future of warfare, which is going to involve um, literally, you know, bionic people that are um, cyborgs because, you know, a cyborg by definition means your human biological capabilities are augmented, you know, through technology. Of course, it also makes you think about the role in which cyber attack and cyber war is going to play in the battlefield of the future, because if you're relying on, you know, all of this, uh, advanced tech, then, you know, what do you do when GPS goes down and, you know, you're unable to, you know, use, use the internet or, you know, probably they're, they're using their own, you know, parts of the spectrum and stuff like that to communicate. But yeah, pretty, pretty wild. I think you dropped another Microsoft article in there that was about eBooks. Was that- yeah. This, this one's interesting to me because it, it feels like, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, um, I get a little tired of, this is true of my, of Microsoft and Google for that matter, but, um, and actually many ed tech tools for, for, for that matter. Microsoft is in, has announced it's closing its ebook store and also they're pulling ePubs, uh, ePub compatibility out of Edge, the browser. And so for those of you that weren't aware of this, uh, Microsoft had opened an ebook store. There was a, uh, an app in the Microsoft app store that worked on the old Windows phone platform and then obviously was installable on Windows 10 and actually worked pretty well on Surface devices, uh, you know, that that you could you know, hold the Surface device like a book and, and read off of that. Um, there's a couple of things that are interesting to me here. First, I'd actually sat in a number of presentations where um, where trainers for Microsoft were trying to make a push for this being uh, an easy way to integrate eBooks in a school environment. And I'm a little sad to, to hear that Microsoft is going in another direction. And, and even though I can't imagine myself using the EPUB reader that often that was in Edge, I do remember a number of instances where I had an EPUB document that did surprisingly open in Edge. And I thought that was a nice add-on, even though, you know, obviously they did this in, in, in response to it not being used uh, very often in, in its ecosystem, but it is sad to see them go in another direction. I did also note, and I believe it was this particular, it was the Therat.com article from Paul Therat, um, that uh, Microsoft is refunding every book purchased um, in that uh, ebook store. So they're literally giving you all the money back if you purchase the book from them, which tells me that that ebook store absolutely uh, couldn't have been a real uh, you know, sales leader for them if they're willing to do that in response. So um, sad to see the functionality go away. There's a lot of excitement about upcoming versions of Edge uh, that's based on the Chromium environment. But one thing I can tell you for certain, um, it will not be able to read ebooks. There you go. Um, this could be a geek of the week, but I've got too many already, so I'm going to throw it under oddities and sundries. We mentioned the um, horrible shooting and and difficulty that folks had uh, being able to not see the content that was live streamed in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, one of the responses that's come out of that is an extension which you can get for Chrome that's called Share No Evil. And so Share No Evil is a movement to make sharing terrorist content culturally unacceptable. Um, and I, I should be able to pronounce this right. It means in New Zealand, but it's Aotearoa. That's a, that's a Maori word, I'm, I'm sure. Um, pretty interesting. I mean, here's how it's, it's marketed. This is free, of course. With the tap of a button, people can take a small step to help starve terrorism of the oxygen it needs to survive. This extension lets you block the Christchurch shooter's name while browsing online using Chrome. The shooter's name is replaced on pages such as news sites with the words show, share no evil. And 
anyway, there's a variety of different extensions like this that actually, you know, change your your web experience in terms of what you see, what's prioritized in Google searches. For instance, Britannica has got an extension that, that gives priority to uh, their results. And so anyway, it's interesting to see how folks are responding. And of course, I don't think this is an extension that a, you know, majority of users are going to, to actually install. And so in that sense, maybe it's a little more symbolic, but I don't know. Um, are, do you install any kind of extensions, Jason, and have them on your, I know you've, what, what was, what was it like 40 and 40 or 30 and 30? What was your uh, 30, and 50. Um, 30 and 50? I don't, I can't remember if we shared any Chrome extensions this year, but um, yeah, extensions are a really important part of my life. And I don't, um, from a, from the pure standpoint of utilizing things like content, uh, uh, pieces, there are, there's a growing number of content filters that you can do that, that kind of give you some contextual information. Uh, for example, I think I mentioned this one on the show last year that, uh, there was one you could install that, uh, allows you to, uh, uh, analyze whether someone, or I'm sorry, whether a Twitter account is likely a political bot or not. So, uh, it would say you're not a bot or, or, or verified a, a bot, which I thought was an interesting piece. Um, you know, it, it's, it's the magic, I think, of, you know, Firefox, uh, uh Chrome and, uh, even version one of the, of the Edge browser and the upcoming version of the Edge browser. But I do think you're going to find more and more people trying to find like technology, uh, solutions, right, for content problems. And, okay. you know, and, and if they can make inroads, they're awesome. I think it's difficult, right, because you still have to have um, either humans or a logarithm deciding, you know, what is in or out, right, which is, is challenging. But, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see it go in that direction. Uh, an article I threw up in the uh, technology correction uh, to, to just flip, flip back to that. And maybe we can do a couple of your art, your uh, Apple articles. Um, this is CNN from April 5th. HUD's new lawsuit against Facebook is a da- is a dagger at the heart of the consumer Internet. And so I think we've talked about this on the show before. One of the criticisms of micro targeting, as you can do with Facebook, is that you can run illegal ads. For instance, you are not allowed because of civil rights law in the United States to, let's say, you know, exclude people who, um, you know, are of a particular ethnicity from your real estate ads or your housing ads. You know, you, you have to have, um, you know, social justice and equity in, in mind. And, and it's actually illegal to uh, unfairly target your ads that are going to intentionally exclude different groups. And so HUD, which is the uh, housing and urban development um, department of the United States government has filed a suit with Facebook and their allegation is that they have engaged in discriminatory practices that endanger and perpetuate bias against marginalized classes of the American population, non-Christians, immigrants, minorities, by displaying housing ads only to selected audience segments in unfair ways. And I've got to say, I'm thrilled to see this because, you know, we've talked on the show. It's, it's a concern when we start talking about regulation. You know, are we going to break the internet? You know, how many members of, of Congress actually understand TCPIP and the, you know, way in which, uh, you know, packets traverse the web and intelligence is supposed to be on the edges. And, you know, there just might not be that many folks who are the actual officials that understand that stuff. So if these people are going to pass laws that regulate the technology, it's, it's concerning. But this is a, I think a very egregious and obvious example of where a lack of regulation has led to a wild west um, that violates our values, our principles, and our laws in the United States. So I'm actually glad to see that. And I will say that's one of the first articles I think I've seen in terms of uh, a specific, you know, U.S. Um, I mean, we, we're, we're hearing things about, you know, members of Congress talking about you know, breaking up internet companies and, you know, doing kinds of wild proposals. But in terms of a lawsuit that really gets at some of the core uh, function and features of Facebook advertising, I think that's the the first one I've seen that's been U.S. based. So right. I don't know. Do you, are you are, Where are you on, on hearing about that and thinking about that? 
Well, I mean, I, I think what I like about that is it takes a, an existing value we've had for decades in the United States and it applies it to the Internet context, right? Like if if regulation becomes we take what we've done traditionally and find a way to apply that to 2019 context, I think that's the best way to regulate the Internet, right? So for me, that's a real victory for, for regulatory schemes because, you know, again, it just enforces something that already meets what we, we have uh, largely agreed are our values in the United States. And so if that's that's how we handle um, the, the the regulation of the Internet, that's awesome. Right. And the things you were mentioning, Wes, where, uh, you know, a lot of people that were in charge of regulating things just didn't understand the fundamentals of, of what, how the Internet worked or how, frankly, um, um, you know, large major media websites work. Um, that's probably not going to lead us to something that, that's going to be, that's going to lead us to better. It's just going to make it more complicated or end up banning things that don't really need to be banned. Yep. Hey, how about some of those Apple articles? I saw you picked up one about MagSafe. Sure. Yeah. So a couple quick things uh, from Patently Apple on April 4th. Um, uh, Apple is working on a way to bring MagSafe to 2019. One of the big criticisms of Apple's move towards USB-C um, is that you lose the MagSafe connector. And for those of you that have not had the delights of Apple hardware before, the MagSafe connector uh, in Macs going back 10 years uh, 11 years maybe, um, they've had these connectors that are magnetically based that allow you to go and kind of pop the, um, and I, for those of you that, that are listening on a podcast, I'm making a, an important action, a pop it onto the uh, uh, Mac laptops. Um, and the great part about that is that if you have a trip, uh, you know, over the cord, which, you know, let's admit it, as geeks, not particularly elo- uh, eloquent walkers occasionally, um, you know, you didn't throw your laptop across the room. And I've seen people that have tripped on, um, you know, uh, uh, laptops without MagSafe connectors that literally you can launch your laptop. And I know people that have broken laptops before, including apparently um, my co-host, Dr. Fryer. Not a complete loss, but definitely yeah. a damage. And that was on a MacBook before MagSafe. Yeah. So I vividly remember it. It was one of my pre-service teacher classes that I was teaching at Wayland Baptist University in Lubbock, Texas. Nice. And that was not a great moment for me and computer cords. Well, and this is the modern uh, 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 connector, right? This is the so-called uh, USB-C connector, and it's what's powering the Chromebook I'm on tonight. I love USB-C, and it, there's still some problems with compatibility, and the market's not su- super great yet. It's getting there, but USB-C is amazing. The fact that I can have one connector that now powers most of my devices, and I can carry a handful of connectors around in my bag, and they all work together, and if you buy good quality ones, it doesn't matter who the manufacturer is, and yada, 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 but the problem with this is, is that it brings back the old-fashioned problem with if you trip over the 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 uh, the charger, your laptop is going to be launched. And I have not done that personally, which I'll be frank is a surprise to me in light of my general clumsiness. But the bottom line is, is that they have invented a way to take the USB-C connector and add a MagSafe component to it, and it doesn't look unlike. Um, some of the products I've seen that don't get very good reviews, but are basically like little stubs that get fed into the USB-C connector, and then the other end of it's another magnetic piece, so it looks a lot like the mag connector, but you know has a third-party USB-C thing. I will say my favorite USB-C connector charger is my Mac charger uh, that I picked up on clearance. Uh, with a bookstore that was going out of business in Missoula, and it is, uh, it's bulkier than the rest of my chargers, but it consistently delivers a good variable power to a variety of USB-C devices. And so I would be totally thrilled if Apple invented, reinvented MagSafe into the USB-C space. Well, my big learning, I've, I'm moving to a MacBook Pro, um, you know, is that, that as I think you've talked about, they're not all created equal. And so yeah. I actually had to, had to get a data cable, you know, because that power cable you have probably isn't going to yep. be able to move data. And so anyway, yeah, interesting to see that. And it's going to, well, I think one of the tipping points, of course, is going to be when Apple on the iPhone releases a USB-C version, um, and so that is happening. It's happened on the iPad. Uh, mm-hmm. The newest iPad is USB-C. And it's crazy, right? I mean, how many of us have, you know, bags of just incredible numbers of dongles? And yeah. so today I was actually on a webinar on the new Pro, wanted to use my headset. Thankfully, 
because I had been trying, you know, one of the newer iPads. I had the eighth inch audio to USB C connector. Anyway, it's, it's going to be a while. And I do in the foreseeable future, we're going to continue to deal with this. Yeah. Um, absolutely. To the, to the yep. benefit of, you know, folks who are selling these. And then one other quick article, and I'm just pointing this out because I'm shocked to be, to be honest, but, uh, um, our good friends at uh, Lost at Mac Rumors quotes the Wall Street Journal in saying that there are apparently more subscribers to Apple Music in the United States right now than there are to Spotify. And here's the deal, folks. I do not know an Apple Music subscriber, right? Like, I have some – okay, I know one Apple Music subscriber – I have some geeky friends out there. They're almost all either Spotify or personally owned library types. And so I, you know, part of it is that, you know, most of the people I know are trying to support multiple, um, uh, multiple, uh, uh, architectures, right? So they need to be able to access it on their Android phone slash, you know, Windows laptop slash yada, yada, yada. But I am surprised because I just don't know many, is my revised headline, um, Apple music subscribers. So, uh, it's, it, it, you know, we, there's been a lot of talk about Apple and the perception that they're moving more towards a service economy because they think that's where the money growth is. Well, their bet on Apple music, uh, seems to have been a good one. And you may remember they picked that up as an acquire, right? Cause they bought Beats and Beats had a music service that became Apple music. And now it's dominating the market. Yep. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, we are, we have been using Spotify on a trial and our daughter just uh, texted me today. Um, and uh, anyway, she was wanting to know if we were going to go ahead and go Spotify family. And I think we are. I mean, I've just, I've loved Spotify uh, for me, it's been the fact that the Google Home, you know, you can on an Android phone, which I had for nine months, I had an iTunes or, or Apple Music app um, to be able to access my subscription that we have for the family, but not so on the Google Home. And yeah. so in order to be able to use my, you know, to, to uh, satisfy my Harry Potter uh, spell casting tendencies, you know, and and say, hey, gee, play, you know, this. Um, it would either be Apple or Google Music or Spotify. And because we've, you know, love Spotify, I think we're going to, at this point, you know, maintain two. I'd, I'd yeah. really like to drop one, but yeah. either way, that's a negotiated well, thing. I'm between. also maintaining more than one. I have Spotify, which I share with family members, and then I'm an early Google Music adopter, and only because, um, that well, the reason why I keep it is because it has so many other services that are integrated into it. Because of Google Music or my Google Play Music subscription, I also got YouTube Pro or YouTube Advanced or Plus or whatever it is for free, which allows me to have ad-free access to YouTube, um, and then also download uh, those pieces to the YouTube app. So that's nine bucks a month that's well spent for me. But I know it's interesting, and again, I you know I think the Apple fan base um, is a little frustrated that it's seems like Apple's putting all their apples uh, in the um, uh, in in the services cart. But the bottom line is, is that um, I, it, it's paying off for them. Right. And if it does mean that at some point they'll maybe head back to the environment where they're perhaps becoming um, at least a little more noticeably innovative in the hardware department, I'd say good. Uh, all good for them. Yep. All right. Well, uh, shall we geek of the weekend? Are we ready yeah. for that? All Let's right. Do. All right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm recklessly abusive of, uh, of any kind of one geek of the week limit, <laughs> which might have somehow been a rule, but, uh, my number one, and I love feedback on this, Peggy and, and several others, Jason have given me feedback. Uh, I'm le- leading this workshop, filtering the exaflood strategies for media and information literacy. And uh, you can find that link on wfriar.me slash exoflood. In the Google Doc that's at the bottom of it, I started to create a table where basically one of the main things that I wanted to teach people, and I'm still 
getting this getting this figured out um, in terms of the flow of the workshop. But I want to give people several different project options, and one of them was going to be to um, use a you know Twitter list, either subscribe to one someone else has created or start one yourself, and then use Flipboard to subscribe to that list. And in that way, you're going to curate content from trusted voices or trusted channels, and then you're going to be able to view it in an app that allows for reading. So I ended up sharing this, and this, this thing kind of exploded a little bit beyond uh, what I'd originally thought it was going to do. So in the first uh, column, uh, we've got tool, the name of the tool. And then the second one is whether it's for article, basically reading. So like inside the app, and I think Peggy was asking in the chat about clarification for this. I didn't put live binders as a yes there because, you know, like Twitter, you're not reading it all in Twitter. You're clicking and then, you know, I guess there is a browser window that it's bringing up, but it's different than like Pocket or Flipboard uh, or Refine or Reddit, you know, which is the article itself is is right inside the app. Um, and then you can do, in some cases, some manipulation with it. So that's our, that's column uh, two. Column three is discovery. So does this allow for the discovery of new content? Um, the, the third is a shout out to Jason and a, you know, presentation he did years ago back, I think, in 2011, you know, talking about information trapping. And so does it allow in some way for you to capture links so that you can find them later? And then I've got a, a column for examples. And so I think what I'm going to do with that project is challenge folks to um, basically, you know, find find one of those um, uh, tools that you haven't used before for information discovery or link trapping uh, and then, uh, you know, tweet a review of it, uh, you know, give some feedback about it. So, you know, start an account with it. It's really interesting. Right. Um, one of the terms that has, you know, come to my mind and I've probably heard that before, but it has to do with like a, a personal, oh gosh, I'm gonna get the acronym wrong. It's like a personal knowledge strategy. Uh, no, I've got a link to it. Uh, personal knowledge management system. So a P in a, a PKM. <laughs> anyway, more acronyms for you. So if you've got any feedback on that, you know, part of this is how do you filter the internet? How do you discover content? How do you save things for later? Uh, and basically it's like, how are you crafting, how, how are you crafting your 21st century newspaper for, for lack of a better term? You know, the, the thing you're going to read on a daily basis to allow you to ingest ideas. Um, I think those are important skills and we want to, we want to be developing and, and expanding our, our literacy about, um, or our understanding of, of what those different tools can do, what affordances, you know, disadvantages, et cetera. So I won't do the other ones quite as long. Um, but the second one, this is a fantastic find after the uh, Smarter Everyday videos. Um, Twitter user Holden has created a completely free ebook and this is Mike Caulfield, actually, I don't know why his Twitter ID is Holden, uh, but he's from Portland and he has an entire book that is free online called Web Literacy for Student Fact Checkers. So that is a tremendous resource. Um, and then the last one is actually on that list of ExoFlood, you know, tools, but I've, it's just been recently updated because so it wasn't working for me. And it's very interesting. And it's called Gobo. It's just gobo, G-O-B-O dot social. I think there's some MIT researchers that are creating this. What it does is it allows you to connect your Facebook and your Twitter. And then over on the side, you have filters to determine how much the posts that you're viewing either match your perspective or challenge your perspective, how diverse they are, I guess, uh, how serious or, or not serious, how rude, um, you know, clean or very rude, whether it's a gender thing, you know, do you want to have a, a kind of a 50 50 if there's a point, there's a button to mute all men. Um, and then you can decide whether or not you want to show content from brands. If you want obscure or viral content, and then they've added something new uh, called 2020 us election rules. And so political news can be overwhelming and this, that would just hide anything about candidates running for the U S 2020 presidential election. Really cool, right? Because this is giving yeah. you the ability to basically have virtual knobs and switches that allow you to shape that feed and that algorithm. So that's probably a tool that I'm going to explicitly point out and show folks because, you know, it, it's on the sidebar. These are tools you don't have inside Facebook or Twitter. I don't have. And so they're crafting this filtering tool that allows us to shape the content that we're seeing in some powerful ways. How about you, Dr. Neifer? 
Geek of the Week. I, I have an easy one. Um, the 2019 Webby nominations have been released. Go vote. And why I like about this award opportunity every year is that it always exposes me to new content I have not heard before. Um, and a lot of it is podcasting and kind of, you know, video channel release. There's also a lot of blogs and news sites there as well. But the 2019 Webbies are open now for voting and it's worth your time to go check out the nominees. Um, I think we're going to probably spend, um, I have some thoughts related to some of the podcast nominees for this year. Sadly, Wes and I were not nominated in any of the podcast categories, although I'm sure we had to be in the top 20 list for hosts. But I would say that uh, there is some things happening in the webcasting world uh, that I want to talk about in a future episode. Um, and the fact that all the content in, in the nominees this year is in free and open platforms, I think is, you know, certainly something we should, uh, you know, think about because it's probably not going to be the case in, in, in uh, entirely the case in the future, but that's for another time. So, Dr. Fryer, where can we find you on the Internet? Well, when I'm not hanging out in the server room at our school, uh, sometimes I'm blogging at speedofcreativity.org. I am tweeting at W. Fryer. And this week, tomorrow night, in fact, we'll be hosting uh, one of two parent university conversations at our school. This one is called Let's Talk About Sexting. In two weeks, we'll be hosting one called Let's Talk About YouTube. And so those presentations and related content are available on our school's digital citizenship website, which is digcit, D-I-G-C-I-T dot U-S. And kudos to you, sir, for running that program. Like, I think that's exactly the kind of proactive thing schools should be doing with their parent community, because to be frank, they're not going to learn it uh, from any other source, really. Like, that's it's not like people are, are reaching out to parents to help them understand the technological minefields that, that, that can sometimes exist in these tools. So... Um, I am a tech savvy teach on Twitter. I blog for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, uh, tech savvy teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And you can find out more about my work with the Montana Digital Academy at our website, montanadigitalacademy.org. Um, I also want to, uh, remind folks that MTDA is a member of the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance. Um, which is at VLLA online, uh, on Twitter where, uh, uh, members of their social media team uh, post interesting articles about distance learning and the power that can bring to provide access to all students in the United States. But not Wes, not me. This thing here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once a week podcast where we, Wes and I get on talk tech from an educational standpoint. Uh, we broadcast live on YouTube. You can go to our Twitter handle, uh, uh, EdTechSR, uh, to find out when we'd like to post a link when we go live, hang out with our chat room moderator, Peggy, and, um, also kind of interact with the host. Uh, if you want to find out more about the links from this podcast, you can also go to our website, website edtechsr.com. You can also download tiny audio versions of this podcast, or you can go to wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, which include places like Stitcher um, and the iTunes podcast library. In fact, it's getting to the point where I can no longer find podcast search engines that don't have the EdTech Situation Room. So please download a future episode. Uh, let us know what you're thinking via Twitter. Uh, we'd love to have your input. Or if you'd like to become a guest on the program, please contact us. We'd love to have a conversation with you. Otherwise, we will see you online. Stay safe. Stay savvy. Adios.